Morning, Belmont family. So glad you took the time to join us and hear what God has to say. But before we jump in, um, I'd like to take a moment to give a personal shout out. You see, today is my gorgeous, beautiful daughter, Josie's first birthday. And man, I am so excited. As a matter of fact, let me just say this real quick. Josie, Papi loves you. We are so grateful for you. You absolutely changed our world and we could never see it again the same way. Um, Being a father has been amazing. And even in the midst of everything that's gone on this year, I have really appreciated uh, the opportunity I've had to just be with my girl and get to know her and bond with her and, and just have this amazing experience with her. And, you know, uh, I'm in my mid-30s, and this is my first child, and I've always been around parents, and I've always been around, obviously, uh, children, and so uh, you have an idea, but you don't really understand until you have your own kid how much a baby really does change your world, really does begin to change everything. Uh, your desires take a back seat when you have a kid. It's just no longer about you alone. It's no longer about what you want to do and what you want to watch and where you want to go. You realize how many times I've had to watch Sesame Street and sing along songs and, you know, sing and all these other things that I don't want to watch, not for the millionth time, but if it makes her happy, then we watch it, right? If it makes her happy, then, you know, I take a bite out of that half-eaten cookie she's offering me. Like, it just, we do these things because they change everything. It doesn't matter if you've had a long day at work. When you get home, that baby wants you to pick them up, wants you to play with them. It doesn't matter if you're working from home, as as I think most of us are just at home trying to work. Um, that child wants your attention. My, my wife was asking me the other day, oh, why is it so much harder for you to do it here? And I just pointed at her. I go, look at her. She's amazing. She's, she's gorgeous. She's funny. I just want to be with her. Like she in and of herself is a distraction to me. And that's the thing. It, it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. That baby becomes a priority. And again, I don't want to paint it in any kind of bad light. I'm not saying, you know, being a parent is this and that. And I'm not trying to play a violin here. What I'm saying is, uh, yes, that baby becomes the priority because I love that baby. It's an aspect of love. It's, it's not out of obligation. It's not because, well, I'm the dad. I got to do this stuff. It's birthed from love. And that's what happens when a baby comes into your life. Yes, there's hard nights. Yes, there's sleepless nights. There's difficulties. There's challenges. But you don't give it up for anything because there's love. A couple, 2,000 plus years ago, there was another baby that came into the world that in a few weeks, you and I are gonna be celebrating on Christmas. And this baby too changed everything, but not because he was born for you to raise, but he was born to raise you from the dead and to give you new life and to give you salvation from who you used to be. And still not everyone was happy about this. Think about this. If you read the Bible, the entire Old Testament is foretelling this moment, right? When Jesus is going to come, beginning in Genesis chapter three, it's the story of Jesus' arrival. And in the book of Matthew, along with the other gospels, we get these recordings of what happened when Jesus was born. But Matthew in particular goes into some subcontext that I think is important for you and I to take a moment and look at. If you go to Matthew chapter two, I'm going to jump around a little bit just to focus in on one particular character. But if you'd like, make sure you take a moment later on and read chapter two. There's a lot of great stuff in that. But let me uh, read just a few of these verses. Matthew chapter two, verse one through eight. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from Eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, 
Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this and as, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be a shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called all the private meeting with the wise men and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. When he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Skipping down a few verses, verse 12, it says, when it came time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. See, Herod had no good intentions and we'll talk about that in just a moment. And in verse 16, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Let me talk to you for a second about King Herod. He is known as Herod the Great, although based on some of these actions, you can tell that he wasn't all that great. Uh, they call him great because he did some good structural things, like he rebuilt the temple. He did a few things around the area, enough to please people. And quite honestly, a lot of times, we have no problem with our leaders as long as they take care of us for the most part. Some of the other things we're willing to overlook. And here, Herod is, is easily showing you that he's not a great guy. As a matter of fact, Herod was an incredibly insecure person. He struggled with paranoia. He struggled with his position. He wasn't even fully Jewish. He was half Jewish. So I think there was some identity issue right there too, feeling like he wasn't enough, like he was never gonna be enough. He, he always wanted to please the Romans. He wanted to please the Jewish people. He wanted to keep his position. He was so paranoid about his position and worried that somebody might try to usurp him or, or take his crown that he actually murdered his own sons, three of his sons, his wife, his wife's mother, and his wife's grandfather. He killed all of these people because he was afraid that they were gonna to try to take his crown. So when he hears of this birth, right, this birth of this child that they had been waiting for for thousands of years and that these wise men have now confirmed has arrived, his natural instinct is to kill the threat because he is the ruler. He is the king of the Jews, not this child that was born. And why am I saying that? Well, I still think we can struggle from time to time with King Herod's mentality. Because you and I often can struggle with wanting to be the kings of our own lives, with wanting to be the rulers. See, we love the idea of a savior is born, right? On this day, our savior is born. December 25th, we celebrate the birth of a savior, but we forget that he's not just savior, he is Lord and savior. That Lord part means he is an authority. He is king, he is in charge. And I think oftentimes we struggle with anybody being in charge, let alone God, because we want to do what we want to do. We want to go where we want to go. And you're seeing this more and more. Nobody can tell me what to do. Nobody can make me wear a mask. Nobody can tell me I can or can't eat here. Nobody can tell me I can stay in my house. We naturally, especially as Americans, we buck at authority, at anybody challenging our rights. And yet God says, no, when, when you're with me, you have no rights. You, you belong to me now. And again, this isn't a mean thing. This is something that's birthed from love, but oftentimes we can struggle with this 
because the pride inside us and the desires of our flesh say, no, I, I still wanna do what I wanna do. Yes, I want God. Yes, I want a relationship with Jesus. Yes, I wanna know him and I wanna love him, but I also wanna do what I wanna do. I wanna go where I wanna go. I wanna say what I wanna say. I wanna act how I wanna act. And the problem is you can't have your cake and eat it too. You, you, you can't live in both worlds. The Bible reminds us that you, you are either hot or cold, lukewarm, gets spit out of my mouth. Like God does not like that middle ground. You're either all the way with him or you're not with him at all. And so how do we battle that as believers? Because I do think it's part of the flesh. It's this natural desire that you have to take charge, to not be dominated, to do what you want to do. And, and this battle between the flesh and the spirit is raging on. And so how do we combat that? What do we do to overcome that issue? Well, I think Jesus gives us a great recipe for that in Luke chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, listen to what the word of God says. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. I believe this is the recipe for surrender. This is how you and I can surrender our crown so that Christ can wear his. This is how you and I deny ourselves Pick up our cross, walk daily so that Christ may live in us. This isn't easy, but I think by the grace of God, we can do it. So let's take a few minutes to just walk through that because I think it's important for you and I to understand what exactly Jesus means when he says that. If you're taking notes, the first thing is this. You need to surrender your rights. In other words, deny yourself. Surrender your rights, the, the right to do what you wanna do, the right to go where you wanna go, the right to say what you wanna say, we surrender our rights before the Lord because we deny whatever it is that we want. See, self-denial and denying self are slightly different. We can often deny ourselves certain things. Uh, you know, I'm gonna deny myself this little bit of money because I'm gonna give it to missions or, or I'm gonna deny myself food because I'm fasting. And we can deny for a moment certain things to certain limits. But to deny yourself is to deny yourself entirely to say what I want and what I desire doesn't matter compared to what God wants and what God desires. That, that my hopes, my dreams, my future, what I think is best isn't in comparison to what God knows is best. And the problem we often have is that we do think it's better. We, we think that our way is better. We think that what we see is the best outcome. And God over and over again in his love and grace is trying to remind us that he knows better than you that he has better intentions than you do and that he can accomplish more things than you can accomplish. Listen, to deny yourself is to give up total control. Luke chapter 14, verse 25 through 26 says that a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if you wanna be my disciple, you must first, by comparison, hate everyone else, your father and mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. That's a harsh teaching, right? If you just take that for face value, you might turn around and say, well, I, I can't follow you then. I love my family. I love my kids. I love my wife. But here Jesus is saying, listen, it's not necessarily that you have to hate them in the sense of being mean to them, be angry. No, no. What he's saying is in comparison to what you have in me, nothing else can measure up. 
Nothing else can come between. Listen, I said this to my wife the day we started dating. I love you, but I will never love you more than God. I love my daughter with all my heart, but I can never love her more than God because I don't love her more than God loves her. And so I need her to understand where her affirmation needs to come from, where her love needs to come from, where the source of who she is has to be in. And I have to do that by demonstrating the first in my life. Luke chapter 14, verse 33 reiterates it. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Think about how cheaply we've given up our relationship with Christ. And we don't always think about this that way, but consider this. Many of us, have been willing to give up our relationship with God for a promotion. What do you mean? Well, think about it in this way. Suddenly you're working more, you're getting paid more money, so you're less active in church. You're not doing the things that God called you to do. You're not talking to people about Jesus. You're not taking care of your family the way God called you to. You start to put things on the back burner because, hey, well, I gotta provide for my family. We start, you know, substituting things. How often have people... Uh, forfeited their relationship with God for a relationship with another person. How many pastors, you know, pastors with big names and, and big churches have sacrificed their ministry, their calling, the purpose, because they couldn't control their hormones with another person? These are those things. And what God is saying is, listen, you need to understand that to be my disciple, you have to deny everything about you and make me the priority. You have to be willing to give up everything you own. Listen, this is an important thought and something that God spoke to me this past week. God does not owe you, he owns you. God does not owe you, he owns you. God doesn't owe me anything. God doesn't, you know, I don't deserve to be given, you know, grace and mercy. I don't deserve to be given a roof over my head and clothes. I didn't earn anything. I can't earn anything from God, but he does own me. Meaning whatever he wants from me, I will gladly give. Whatever he desires from me, I have to be willing to surrender. Why? Because I've surrendered myself. I've surrendered my rights. And it's not just me anymore, but it's God. If you're taking notes, the second thing you need to understand is not just surrendering your rights, but we need to practice surrendering, right? Take up your cross daily. I love that Luke slides in that word daily because I think that's important. That idea of taking up your cross daily is dying to yourself on a regular basis, is to deny yourself on a regular basis, is to practice surrendering. Listen, Matthew chapter 26, verse 39 says, he went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he's about to be captured, beaten, and crucified for your sins and mine. And he's having this moment, this heart-to-heart -heart with God, and he's being honest because Jesus was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. He had feelings, he had emotions. And in this moment, he's being honest and he's saying, God, I don't really want to do this. I don't want to go through all this, but it's not about what I want. It's about what you want. And so he surrenders his will to God. But then if you look a little bit later after he checks in with the disciples and realizes that they don't have his back like he wants them to, verse 42 of chapter 26 says this, then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. He just prayed that prayer. And yet he's coming back and he's praying it again. 
And then we read in verse 44, so he went to pray a third time, saying the same thing again. What is Jesus doing? He's practicing surrender. He's going back and he's surrendering again and again and again. Listen, many of us, we've, we've had a moment, maybe it was that moment where you accepted Jesus as your savior and you surrendered your life. And in that moment, you were able to give up everything. But then a few days come by and you start collecting things again. And you forget about the stuff you abandoned. You forget about how you surrendered your life and that you gave yourself up to God and you no longer live, but Christ lives. We, we forget about the surrender because we've picked up arms again. Pick up your cross daily means every day we surrender to God. Every day we practice that surrender. We say, God, not my will, but your will. God, not my will, but your will. It's okay to be honest. Jesus was honest. Jesus was transparent, but he was also willing to say, your desire matters more than my desire. How often do we wrestle with God and think it's a bad thing? I don't think it's a bad thing to wrestle with God because there are things that God needs to wrestle out of you. There are things that God needs to help you submit to. It's important to practice this surrender, to not assume that you've just made it and that suddenly everything's gonna go great. No, no, there's gonna be things in life as you add on. Listen, surrendering my family was one thing until I got a daughter. Now I had to re-up again. Now I had to look at her and go, okay, can I surrender her to God? If God calls her one day to the mission field, let's say, and to do something that I maybe don't want her to do, am I willing to surrender her? Am I willing to say, not my will, but your will be done, God? See, these are all things that we all struggle with as believers, but we have to practice at it because it's practice that makes perfect. It's something that we have to do on a regular basis because if you can practice surrender, it doesn't become that difficult because it's something you're used to doing on a regular basis. And the third thing is this. We surrender our rights and we practice surrendering. And part of that is surrendering our future. We need to learn to surrender our future. He says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, carry your cross daily, and follow me, right? Follow me means that I don't determine where I'm going. The person I'm following does. As a matter of fact, I hate following somebody in a car. Whenever we're going somewhere and somebody says, yeah, just follow me, I go, no, give me the directions, tell me where we're going, and I'll meet you there. I would much rather meet someone there because then I don't have to worry about where they're going or what turns they're making. I can just do what I want to do. And a lot of times we would honestly prefer that with God. God, I know we're trying to get to heaven. Just tell me where I'm trying to go and I'll get there on my own. I'll figure it out on my own. And what God is saying is, buddy, you can't figure it out on your own. It doesn't work like that. You have to follow me. There's twists and turns on this journey that you're never gonna see coming. There's moments in life that are gonna be so difficult that you're gonna have to have me help you navigate through that. And so we surrender because a lot of times we think I need to go right when God's saying, no, no, you have to go left. There's a lot of moments where we think this is the one and God's saying, no, not the one I chose. There's a lot of times where we're making decisions based on our guts and our feelings and our emotions. And God is saying, why are you relying on that when the Holy Spirit is here to guide you? Where you can follow the Spirit of God and he will lead you into all truths as the Bible says. Listen, Matthew chapter four, verse 18 through 20. It says, one day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once. 
and followed him. This doesn't sound like a big deal until you really focus in on the context of what's going on. Here are two brothers whose livelihood is fishing. That's how they provide for their families. That's how they take care of themselves. That's how they eat. That's all they know. Suddenly, they have a whole day where they haven't caught anything. Jesus shows up, tells them to throw their nets on this side of the boat. They trust him, even though it makes no sense in a practical way. And they catch the greatest catch of their life. And then they leave their most successful moment in fishing for an opportunity to do what God has called them to do. That doesn't make sense in practical terms or in our earthly eyes. But what God is saying is my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. Trust me, I have a plan for your life, not to harm you or to hurt you, but to give you hope and a future. We have to be willing to follow God as difficult as that might be. I was thinking about this as I was going over my notes and when I first uh, was just a volunteer leader with our youth ministry, this is maybe 15 years ago, and I was learning under the current pastor at the time, Pastor John, one of my jobs, my role on a Thursday night was to literally follow him. Like that was my job. I had to go wherever he went and be there. Went to the bathroom, I was in the bathroom. Went to the kitchen, I was in the kitchen. Went to have a meeting. I was sitting in the meeting as well. I had to follow him. I remember at one point, I turned around to talk to somebody and I looked back and he's gone. And this is right before service is about to start. So I'm looking all over for him. We need him for mic checks and to do some stuff. And so I'm looking all over. Literally at one point, I think, well, I'm gonna just check the closet. I opened the closet and he's squatting down in a corner hiding. And I go, you're a grown man, what are you doing? And he just looked back at me and said, you were supposed to follow me. Listen, following Jesus is hard if we're constantly taking our eyes off of him. If we allow distractions to pull us away from him. See, to follow Jesus means to follow him all the time. You can't just follow him on Sunday and then Monday through Saturday do your own thing. That's how we end up losing him. That's why we end up feeling like, I don't sense the presence of God anymore and I don't know where God is. Well, maybe you stopped following. Maybe you stopped keeping your eyes on him. That's why the Bible reminds us to fix our eyes on Jesus. That word fix means to lock it in to fix our eyes on Jesus so that where he goes, I go. What he does, I do. What he says, I say. Listen, this is a huge aspect of being a disciple is being willing to follow Jesus. And that's easy where we feel like Jesus is leading us to places we wanna go. But the real challenge is when the Holy Spirit begins to lead you to places that you don't wanna go. When he begins to tell you, I know you think you're supposed to do this, but that's not what I want for you. I know you got your heart set on buying this new house, but I don't want you to buy a house right now. I know you got your heart set on going to a new church, but I'm not telling you to leave yet. I know you got your heart set and starting this new relationship, but this isn't the person I want you to be with. These are all things that are difficult when we've already made up our mind that it's what we want. But if you truly wanna be a disciple, you have to surrender that crown. You have to surrender your rights, surrender yourself and say, God, it's not about what I want anymore. It's about what you want. And just a few more verses as I get ready to wrap this up. Luke chapter nine, verse 23 through 25 says, then he said to the crowd, 
If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. And then he goes on to say something interesting. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost and destroyed? This is a powerful piece of scripture for me because I think so often in this Christian journey, we try to do it in our own effort. We try to hang on and earn and gain and save our life. The things that we think are part of our life, the American dream, the pursuit of happiness, all these ideologies that are mixed in into our cultural world, we try to pursue that. And here Jesus is saying, listen, if you try to save it with your own hands, ultimately you are gonna lose it. But if you're willing to lose it, if you're willing to surrender your life into mine hands, then you will truly gain it. Going back to Herod, Herod so desperately longed for the approval of people to gain that life. He wanted the Romans to approve of him. So he was willing to compromise the things of God. He was willing to do what it takes so that the Romans could put him in power. He was wanting the approval of the Jewish people. And so he was willing to rebuild the temple and, and do certain little projects in order to make them happy. He, see, he, he was constantly trying to please people and even himself that he never had time to understand that he was supposed to be pleasing God. And that if you please God, if you live a life that pleases the Lord, it'll ultimately always benefit you in the long run. He was willing to lie, scheme, and kill just to keep his crown. And here's the thing about a real king. That's not how they act. Think about this. When we were reading Matthew and the wise men came, they said, we came looking for the king of the Jews. Side note on this, I think it's interesting that Jesus as a baby was already king of the Jews. He wasn't the prince, right? He wasn't going to grow into his kingship. He was born the king. And they come looking for the king of the Jews. And the problem is, that's the title that Herod thinks he holds. Herod thinks he's the king of the Jews. And so now is this contradiction, now is this battle where he's saying, no, 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 there's no way you can have a new, I am the king, I hold the crown. But when we look down the line in the story of Jesus, as you continue to read the gospels and you see after that moment in the garden of Gethsemane when he's captured, where he's beaten, where he's bruised, where he's hanging on the cross, as we look at the cross of Calvary, that same cross where Jesus not tried to gain his life, but was willing to give up his life so that you and I can gain. Notice what we see. Matthew 27, verse 37. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head announcing the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Jesus was willing to give up his life so that you and I can gain it. That's what a real king does. A real king is worried about his people. A real king is worried about what's going on in their lives. We can't carry the weight of the crown on our own heads. We're not that strong. 
over and over again, humanity has tried and failed to be its own king. What God is saying is, let me carry the crown because it's not a crown of gold, it's a crown of thorns. It's a crown of suffering. And he bore it on the cross so that you and I don't have to bear it in life. Church, I'm asking, are you willing to surrender? There's parts of your life and and listen, for some of you, you think, well, Pastor Joey, I've already surrendered my life to Jesus. Maybe parts of it. But could it be possible that there are still areas in your life that you have been unwilling to surrender? Is it possible that the, the things that you didn't like about your old self, the things that you were ashamed of or embarrassed of, those were easy to surrender. But there's some sin in your life that you're not in a hurry to surrender because honestly, you're comfortable with that sin. You embrace that, you like that. Sin of pride, sin of lust, sin of anger. All these little things that, that God is saying, but I need you to surrender completely, not just partially. Are you willing to hand it over? Listen, I'll close in this last verse, Galatians chapter two, verse 20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body, by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Church, I I wanna end with this one question. Are you fully surrendered? Are you fully surrendered to your God? Have you been willing to say, Jesus, it's no longer about me. It's not about my desires, my will, my hope, my future. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Are you willing to fully surrender so that you can fully embrace everything that God has for you. And if you are, I wanna include you in this prayer. Why don't you join me? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you. I thank you that people were listening, not to my voice, but to yours. I thank you for the conviction of the Holy Spirit that reminds us, yes, there are areas that we haven't fully surrendered. Or maybe there are even some who are listening who haven't surrendered any part of their life and they're struggling, they're desiring you, but they're battling with wanting to carry the crown, with wanting to be in charge. And so Lord, I ask, help us to lay it all at your feet, God. Help us to be fully surrendered before your throne. Help us to understand that greater are your ways, that your thoughts are far above our thoughts, that you are the one who has a purpose and a plan for our lives that we don't have to be in charge because you want to be in charge because you desire to lead us and to guide us. So Lord, we thank you for that. We honor you for that. And we ask Holy Spirit, help us in those parts that are difficult, in those areas that we're stubborn with, help us to fully let go and fully surrender. We thank you for all of that. And we pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen and amen. God bless you, church. Be well and enjoy the rest of this week. Amen.